Welcome to the Old Chick Snowship Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. This podcast is dedicated to helping midlife women step into the inherent power and wisdom of a time of life when they often feel overlooked and underrepresented and even begin to doubt themselves. Each week, we will cover information and inspirational topics along with real stories from real women who are defying cultural stereotypes and perceptions of midlife. Women who are reinventing themselves, starting businesses, chasing their dreams, and tackling challenges they never thought possible. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Old Chick Snowship Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. On today's episode, we are going to be talking all things health and fitness. And we're not just talking about health and fitness from the perspective of like losing weight, you know, a specific scale number or looking a certain way. We're going to be talking about health and fitness in the context of taking control of your life to be your best self and to live long and healthy life well into your 80s and 90s and hopefully even beyond that. My guest today is Kim Rahir, who is a strength and fat loss coach um, specifically for women over 40. And she has a ridiculously inspiring personal story about how she empowered herself through health and fitness and really took her life back. So uh, welcome, Kim. I'm so happy to have you here on the podcast with me. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here to be able to share. You know, every... I must get, and I think in about the last month, I must have had probably about, I want to say 10 to 15 pitches from people in the health and fitness space. (laughs) It's a very, very popular topic. It's probably the number one topic for women over 40 with menopause, weight gain, and all kinds of things like that. But for me, this topic is so much more important than just losing weight so that you can fit a beauty ideal. It's about being mentally, physically, and emotionally strong. And I think that's what your story, like why you stood out from the (laughs) sea of pitches that I got is because your story is so inspiring about how this journey, this health journey has actually impacted your life. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what your story, like when did you get started into fitness and then how did that evolve through your illness and all of that? Yeah, of course. So I was actually... I think the first time my mom took me to a sports or a gym club was when I was three. And it was like called gymnastics or movement for bums and kids. So I had always been sort of physically active. I at some point started going to the gym, just, you know, do a little bit of strength work. But it was always in this sense of, you know, I need to be something to look after myself to be healthy. It was like something you did, like brushing your teeth, nothing particularly inspiring or that I was passionate about. But I did keep myself sort of fit. And then like nearly exactly 15 years ago, uh, we had just moved to a new town again. We were moving all the time, three kids and my husband. We had just arrived in Berlin, had spent about a year there. And I at the time thought that I was really so at the pinnacle of what I'd always wanted to reach, I had a great family, three kids, and I had, after years of freelancing, landed a full-time job. And I thought, wow, this is it. And I've finally proven what I've always wanted to prove. I can have a career, I can have a great job and a family. And there's, you know, no need to choose between the two, as they always say, especially for women. And then literally from one day to the next, it all stopped. I was literally cut down by a weird illness, nobody knew what was going on. It started with me seeing double 
And then I was taken to hospital and they did all kinds of checkups. And very slowly, I lost the sensitivity in my legs. And after two weeks in hospital, I was like paralyzed from the hip downwards. And they had all kinds of theories what this could be. But since the symptoms didn't fit into any box, any pre-made box, you know, if you have this symptom and the one from the other box, then they don't know in which box to put you. And I was there sort of craving a diagnosis and then tell me what's wrong with me. And that was very scary. I got all kinds of transfusions. And finally, my legs came back very slowly, but it took months and months before I could walk properly again. I was in a wheelchair for a long time. And the most frightening experience during those hospital days for me was this realization that you as a patient, in a way, you lose your humanity. It sounds incredible mm. because there are so many yeah. people whose job it is to look after you, and they do. And you see all the all the hardworking nurses and everything, but still, you know, people just walk into your room, for example. You want to sleep or you, you have some quiet time for yourself? No, people will walk into your room. This tiny thing already takes away a lot of your self-determination. And then they will perform all kinds of tests on you without asking you. You become an object or a thing. That's how you feel. Yeah. Um, And because my case was so rare and weird, I once a week got like, you know, a group of students gathering around my bed. It was like a scene from a movie, me lying there paralyzed. And then all these faces looking down at me and saying, oh, this is a very interesting case. And I really just wanted my life back and my humanity, my dignity back. I really felt like a thing. You yeah. know, you can't walk. It's worse because they will yeah. you know, take you to a test somewhere in the hospital. You'll be in your bed on a corridor and you, you know, <laughs> right. no, people walk past you like you're a piece of furniture. You're just there and wait. Yeah. So that was quite traumatizing, to be honest. Yeah, because you get reduced to a set of symptoms, really. Like you're no longer the person with the symptoms. You're, you know, and I imagine with those medical students, it's like, oh, yeah, here's the symptoms. Like, forget the person who had a life, you know, as kids, as a family, as a job, right? Like none of that matters in that moment. And you become just that set of symptoms, which, yeah, very dehumanizing, I can imagine. Absolutely. And I think that's sometimes even worse than the fear. Yeah, the fear, and you don't know what's going on with you. It's scary and you can sort of not look into the future. You can keep yourself from thinking long term, you know, with a little bit of effort. Just, I'm just going to make it through the day. But, you know, how the people treat you. And, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that they're doing this on purpose or anything. It's just how the system works. And and that makes you feel small and weak very quickly. Yeah, because then you start to believe you are your symptoms. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. So what was your journey like from that point? So your legs start to come back, but you've did you ever end up with a diagnosis? Sort of. They finally opted for one of the possibilities, but it was not 100% because what they thought it was, it's called a syndrome Guillain-Barré, which is unpronounceable, but that's a one-off. And I had for just a week, um, my symptoms had gotten worse again, you know, just, I mean, not even a week, like three days. So that didn't fit into the box. So they weren't sure. Waited another two months or something. They gave me 
monthly transfusions to be sure that I was getting better. And then after a while, they decided, yeah, actually, it was that kind of syndrome. They had changed a little bit their view of this, and there actually could be little relapses. So that, you know, took like six months for me to know what it had been that I was actually suffering from. And I still had to go for two years to get monthly transfusions just to make sure. And I started feeling pretty quickly that I didn't need them. But, you know, that's also the thing when you're a little bit disempowered, you know, you don't trust your own body as much and you, you're told you need this, you have to go there. And then you keep doing this. And there there was yeah. at that point, I already felt this unease with li- hearing what I was told, which was supposed to be the expert opinion, and noticing what I felt. And I felt that I was better. I could walk normally after six months without weird sensations in my legs. And I felt that I was getting back to normal. And there was, you know, this contradiction there that Um, It took a while for me to to make a decision and say, no, I'm going to follow what I'm feeling. Yeah. So this takes such an immense amount of courage. And I want to just kind of double click here a little bit because you have these awful symptoms. You have an expert and people listening, I've got my air quotes. You have this expert opinion. And by every convention of our modern society, you know, it's listen to the experts. They know best. They know what's best for you. And then you have also your own intuition, your own body sensation, your own body talking to you. And when those two things conflict, it takes a ridiculous amount of courage to trust yourself over the so-called expert. Like, what was that process like for you, like in terms of like learning to trust what your body was telling you versus the experts? I think it was just a process of getting tired of the never ending treatments and the evidence that I had waking up every morning feeling better. Um, It's very hard to I can't say that was one moment where it was a breakthrough. And there's one thing I have to say, because I don't want to be, I don't want to say, don't listen to your doctor, not at all. That would be crazy. No, no, no. Absolutely crazy. But in everything they told me from the beginning, they themselves communicated uncertainty. They told me themselves that they couldn't tell 100% what it was. They told me themselves that every outcome is totally unique. You have no idea what's in store for you because this is an autoimmune thing that's happening. And you know how much we still do not know about what's going on there. So I was just picking up the parts of what they were telling me that sort of supported what I was feeling. I didn't go totally, it was not like they said, you know, you can't do this or you must keep getting these transfusions. At some point, we sort of came to an agreement and still deep inside me, there was this thing that I do not want to get treatment for the rest of my life. Nobody wants that. And maybe that was the driving factor, but also- Also, and that's very important, listening to the doctors, I was able to pick up their uncertainty because you need a certain mindset also to be receptive to that. Many people tend to want, you know, the doctor to just say A and then they do A and it's fine. They don't want to 
think right. about it anymore. So you need right. to you need to be ready to also receive the message if there is one that maybe fits better with what you feel and what you want to do. Right. Right. Still, that takes courage, like to be able to even, you know, <laughs> put your own voice into the mix. Because I mean, I always, you know, and I always used to say this, and I have, I have since stopped saying this is like, well, I would say, you know, well, I'm not the expert here, you guys are. Right? And then I'm like, but wait a minute, I'm let, that's like completely, you know, handing over my power to somebody else, because yes, they're the expert in that subject. But I am the expert in me in my body, right? And factoring that voice in. Yeah, I think that's really super important. And um, that makes me think right away of all the women in their 40s and 50s, when they start experiencing perimenopause, and they get weird symptoms. And because they feel a little bit surprised or helpless and they go to see a doctor, they have to remember, and that happens so easily to forget, you are the expert in you, just yeah. as you said, you are the expert in your own body. And if you have aches and pains when you wake up in the morning and the doctor tells you, oh, it's be, you must be depressed, you know, no, you know, don't take it for granted. Just check back with what you are feeling. You know what's going on with you. Take it seriously. Listen to what's going on. And if you feel that you're not being heard with your symptoms, then just, you know, say it again and stand up to, to this reaction that you feel is not right for you. Because yes, yeah. the doctor is, is, you know, he's the expert for, you know, prescribing medications and classifying symptoms, whatever it is, but you are the expert in you and your body and what you're feeling. And you must take that seriously and be serious about that. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, so many women that I have talked to on the show and women that I know personally who have you know, because we didn't talk about menopause a lot, at least I didn't talk about menopause at all, you know, when I was growing up and not knowing what to expect. And then all of this stuff starts to happen in your body. And you go to the doctor and the doctor is equally as uneducated as you are in a lot of cases. Right. And I know in my own experience, it took going through a series of doctors until I found one that was like, oh, wow, I think this is menopause. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Right. But like, how many people did I have to go through to get to that place where somebody actually understood this is what's happening in your body and could explain it to me? Right. And I hear this over and over and over again. And, and, you know, if there's one thing that people take away from this podcast and specifically your story is that exact thing is like you just keep looking until you find answers that make sense to you, until you find people who are listening to you and not dismissing your symptoms. Right. People who are willing to educate themselves. Like what I found was like my GP. I was educating her on things that I had learned because she just did not have a resource and no fault of her own. She just, it wasn't in her book anywhere, <laughs> right? I think that I think that's actually a big problem because doctors, they go through such a long and I think excruciating training for years and years yes. and years. But then exercise and nutrition in all those years is probably like 10 hours in the curriculum or something like this. Yeah. Um, and if doctors could prescribe strength training, that would be fantastic if they felt that this was a solution, if they were even aware that this could be a solution to so many problems. Um, so if you have 
symptoms and what you hear as as an answer is not you know congruent with what you're feeling yes you have to keep looking and that's i think it's pretty difficult in some countries and yeah. societies where medical yeah. care is complicated hard to come by and you you know you cannot just go from doctor to doctor and say i need i need an explanation yeah. and i think that's that's a situation that needs to be dealt with at some point for sure so back to your story then. So you get to this point where you kind of mutually agree with your doctor then that, okay, we're not going to do, you know, these treatments anymore. Where do you go from there? Well, like I, how did you take the, the reins, I guess? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the thing is, the story doesn't end there because that was the first oh, part okay. of my story. Oh, right. And they, okay. <laughs> and I, I felt that I was given a second shot at life, actually, because from having to go to transfusions once a month, you know, at first you're happy because you're getting a treatment. And then after six months, you think, oh, can I maybe do this without treatment? This is how we are, you know, humans. We, we want more and we want a normal life. So I right. felt I had been given like a second shot at life. We moved again. We lived in France for a year. After a year, I felt my left hand going numb. And after some tests and diagnostics, they said it, this was like the first episode of MS, which is also autoimmune and which I wasn't expecting and which was even scarier than what I had first. Because first they didn't know, right. which is scary, but MS, you have at least like a variety of outcomes that you've heard of. And then it happened again. The doctor said, well, if you have a second episode, a relapse, then, you know, you're officially diagnosed and we start treatment. So I spent a year waiting uh, for hoping that nothing would happen. And then I did feel weird tingling in my back while I was doing a crazy yoga pose had to go back. It was a relapse and I was officially diagnosed. And I think because I had all this experience in, of dealing with doctors and making sure that I understood what was going on and also that I was understood when the doctor told me, now you're going to need treatment for the rest of your life. I fought with him for an hour. I didn't want that. <sighs> because the, right. this, when you're told you get a treatment for life, you, you feel in your bones that you're never going to get out of this because imagine you don't have any symptoms, then you're going to th think it's because of the treatment. You're not going to stop it. Right. Right. So that, there seems no way out. And he was not used to someone uh, sort of questioning his prescriptions. Um, he was very patient up to a point and I could feel him getting like really impatient. He gave me like three months or something before I had to start. And then I started the treatment and It's something that makes you feel absolutely miserable. You have to inject yourself three times a week and you get flu-like symptoms. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, it's very unpleasant. And I didn't really want to live like that. So I just took like anti-inflammatories or, or painkillers or something on the days that I injected myself. And I lived a normal life because before that I had gone back to the gym You know, in the old way, normally, um, yeah, I was physically active and I was reasonably fit. Then I started this treatment. I took painkillers to not suffer from it. And I asked my doctor who gave me that treatment, can I exercise? Can I go to the gym? And he said, yeah, of course, but be careful, uh, you know, do gentle things. 
And I was wondering why, why did he say that? Was, did he actually know what he was talking about? Because I have, you know, I lost sensitivity in my left hand because of that very first episode. Otherwise I was actually quite okay. And I had a chat with a nurse because when you're officially diagnosed, and this is also something that I found scary and that I was very alert and attentive about, you sort of get welcomed into the community, which, you know, at first sight, it sounds nice because you're not alone and there's support and you can talk to people and everything. But it's, you know, you're also getting a label. You're also, you are that sick person now. You're one of us. And I didn't feel very good about this. But the nurse said something that made me listen. She said, oh, exercise. And she, everybody always says just exercise. I, you don't even know what they mean by that. Could be walking, could be right. doing handstands, whatever. Exercise is good with MS because it makes your body more fatigue resistant. And I thought, aha, here we go. We're on to something. Because I felt good. I went back to the gym and I started lifting and I found myself a really good book, um, you know, about lifting for women. And I just worked on building muscle and getting stronger. It's hard to believe, but it's like it takes weeks and you feel like a different person. And I knew I was onto something. Uh, I knew that something was happening with my body that made me stronger and that helped me also with my mindset. I was even more confident that I was going to beat this thing and I was going to be fine. And I used the treatment for something like, I think it was like four years. We moved Mm. countries again. We moved to Spain, found myself a new doctor who after, you know, seeing me twice a year, seeing how I moved, seeing how I carried myself, you know, they check all your symptoms, your reflexes, everything. And he, after these three years, he said, do you want to maybe try and stop the treatment for a while? And I thought, wow, how lucky, how lucky I am. This also something, yes, it takes courage and you have to, you know, you know, fight your way back to a normal life and getting stronger. But I meeting this doctor who said you can stop the treatment, which was totally out of the box. Nobody ever stopped MS treatment during those times. Maybe it's different now that it was like now six years ago at the time. Right. It was crazy. So I was, right. I also was lucky. I'm very grateful for that. We stopped six years ago and I'm without treatment, you know, for now for six years without having any problems. And that wow. made me think there must be something right about, you know, working on your strength. And, you know, not doing gentle stretching and not going only for walks, but actually build some serious muscle to help you carry yourself with confidence. Oh, I love this so much because I think there's so many things that you just said in that. So the idea that, you know, everybody says, oh, just get some exercise. And to your point, like exercise can literally be, you know, sitting on your couch, lifting a five pound weight, right? Like, you know what I mean? Versus you know, go build some muscle, which is like from all the reading that I've been doing, it's like the miracle cure for pretty much everything. Like it makes you harder to kill in all the aspects, right? Like you're less likely to have a fall. You're not as susceptible to disease. Your immune system's better, like all of these kinds of things, right? But then the mental and emotional components of building strength are the part that I, in my own personal experience and like and I've been a gym goer for a long time. I mean, 
the gym is pretty much and lifting heavy weights has pretty much gotten me through like my divorce, all the bad things that have happened got worked out in the gym. And like, did it change any of those things on the outside? No, but it made me recognize that I'm much more stronger than I think I am. Right. So when I go in and I, you know, pull that deadlift off the floor and you know what I mean? And it's my body weight. I'm like, well, I can do that. I can do this. Like it's so transferable. So it's building the physical resilience, but it's also building the mental and emotional resilience, which I think is the part that we don't talk about enough. I totally agree. And this it's quite fascinating, actually, because there's really serious, solid, good body of research on this. There is no doubt that strength training will improve mental health. It will reduce anxiety. It will reduce depression. There is no doubt about that. Now, the fun thing about this is nobody has identified the mechanism through which that works. But I think there are oh. some hints. There are some hints because when it comes, for example, to willpower, overcoming inner resistance or outer resistance, we mm. know that it's something that you can practice. So when you overcome a resistance regularly, and it could be any kind of resistance, it could be someone telling you, you can't do this, or it could be your you know, inner laziness telling you, nah, I don't want to go out for that walk today. All these willpower and overcoming resistance processes are in one single part of the brain. And if you train that part of the brain, um, it will be more effective in all other aspects of life too. So when you resistance mm. train and you overcome that resistance and you teach yourself that you can overcome resistance and that you can overcome challenges, that will actually transfer, like you said, to other parts of your life. And it could be an explanation why strength training is so great for mental health. There's another thought that I had, I have no idea if there's any scientific foundation to that, but I recently found out that actually testosterone is really crucial in women's bodies too. And mm, right. lack symptoms of low testosterone are lack of motivation, depression, anxiety, things like this. And we know that if you train your muscles, if you do strength training, you will increase your testosterone. So maybe there's a link there, maybe not. But there's no doubt if you start lifting weights, you will become happier, more confident and take on life's challenges much more easily. Yeah. And I think you raised a really good point about identity as well, too, and how like even building strength can fill into your identity because, you know, you're diagnosed with MS. You, oh, here, welcome to the group of MS people. Now my identity has become, I am the person with MS, right? Yes. And that mindset has its own set of challenges. So yes, it's lovely to have the support, but when we start identifying with this thing, right? It yes. can be a bit of a slippery slope. On the flip side of it, like, you know, when you are increasing weight every week in the gym, you know, getting stronger than like that has a huge impact on your identity because it's like all of a sudden I'm like, I'm not this anymore. I'm not this weak, you know, sick person. I am now a person who is seriously badass because I, I can deadlift my body weight or half my body weight or whatever your metric is. It's totally personal. But I think that component of identity and especially for us as women as we get older is so critical because the world sees us as weaker, softer, 
less relevant, invisible, like all of those types of things. And it's easy to take that on because that's literally what's fed to us every day from every angle in every commercial. <laughs> like culturally, that's what's fed to us. So when we go in the gym and go, yeah, well, I might be 57 years old, but I can also do two unassisted chin-ups, right? It's like, okay, well, I'm not weak. I'm not powerless. It's such an important component. And I mean, I wish that sense of that feeling of empowerment for all women, like regardless of age. <laughs> Absolutely. I so agree with you. And it's something that I observe all the time when I work with my clients. Yes, most of them come to me for weight loss. You know, what, just what you mentioned, that's, that's the thing that we yeah. are taught to aspire to. We, you know, as I think from a young girl's age, we are the value catalog is like, you know, be small, be cute, be tiny, be <laughs> elegant, you know, no, it's never yeah. be strong. So when my clients come to me, it's mostly about weight loss. And then after a few weeks of, of training, you know, you can see it, their eyes are shining and they feel so great. It just, it changes their quality of life and it changes their identity. And I think yeah. this is also something that we really have to fight because when you talk to women our age and they struggle with symptoms, menopause symptoms, for example, it's very easy also to put on this identity of a menopausal woman who is like sort of moody and fatigued <laughs> and, you know, wants to be invisible, has brain fog. And you can forge, you can literally forge yourself a new identity if you just, you know, go there and lift some weights. And I want to be clear, you do not have to start by going to a gym. You, if you don't want to go to a gym, you right. don't have to go ever. You can do, you know, all that at home with body weight exercises. You know, you, you can become mighty strong and getting, you can keep getting stronger for years, just being at home and working out. But you have to go get out of this yoga mindset where you think I have to do just very gentle, gentle things and, and increase my flexibility a little bit. Yoga is fine, it's fantastic, but it's not going to have that effect on your identity and on your confidence that you will get when you True. literally build your muscles and get strong. What do you think is the reason? Because I know that there are women who are very hesitant to, you know, start strength training. Like, why is it that women are so reluctant to go in that, that route, do you think? I think there's various aspects that one generally cultural aspect is that the whole narrative is still dominated, I think, by something from the 70s where and Arnold Schwarzenegger pumping iron in the gym. When you t say strength training, <laughs> right. even when you say weightlifting, which is a, you know, a sport, a separate sport, people think of Arnold and pumping iron and not only women not, don't feel attracted to this, but a certain type of men are also this, no, no, what's this? You know, this is just meatheads and it's for stupid people. <laughs> right. um, and then, then there's, of course, the, you know, this cultural thing and the way female values are presented nowadays. We mentioned it before. It doesn't feel like the right thing to do because, you know, we want to, don't we have to be like smaller? Don't we have to right. like, take less space than more? And, you know, maybe not be seen so much. And it's just culturally, like, it's not yeah. familiar to women. It's not familiar. What they will say is probably something like, I'd like to be more toned. Um, no. You know, that goes into that direction. And what I just say is, it's not even, you know, about looking female or not female or feminine or not feminine. It's about 
having no back pain, having no knee pain. It's about, yeah. you know, feeling good and strong. It's functional. It's, but it's really, I think it's cultural. And then for, because if you've never been sort of confronted with this or have never done it, I think it can be a little bit scary. And this is also yeah. where I explain over and over again that you can do it at home, that you can become strong at home. You don't have to go to the gym if you don't want to. But if you adopt the concept of building muscle and getting stronger, you will benefit. Yeah. So if you have a woman who has never strength trained in her life, she wants to get started. How do you recommend that women usually start? The first thing that you want to do is sort of rebuild the connection between the brain and the muscles. When you're a kid, you run around a lot, you jump and you, you climb and you do stuff, even as a girl. So the connection is there, but it sort of falls asleep over a long sedentary life. Our brain is very pragmatic and actually quite ruthless. If you sit for hours and days and weeks and months and years on end, it will sort of disconnect, for example, from your buttock muscles. You don't need them. And right. it's what it's what we call gluteal amnesia. It's just, you know, because these connections, firing a muscle requires energy and the brain is not going to waste energy on firing a muscle that is never used. So when then all of a sudden you want to use that muscle because you want to train, you have to reestablish or improve, reactivate that connection. So you have to start very gently with tiny movements where just this firing of the muscles practice and the brain gets used to connecting to the muscles again. It's also very crucial to start like that because otherwise you could get hurt. So many women, right. they want to do something, they want to work out again, and then they follow a YouTube video or they go to a class. And because this connection is not totally functional, your brain sees a movement and you try to mimic the movement but you cannot actually move your muscles in an effective way. And that's why you can get hurt. So you need to go through some kind of reconnection, reactivation period and build from there with body weight exercises. And from there, then the sky's the limit once, you know, you're fully connected to your muscles. Yeah. And I think being connected with your body in all the ways, like, so we talked a little bit about that, like even just from understanding your symptoms, but like really listening, you know, like they always say, put your mind in the muscle kind of thing when you're lifting, yes. but like really, because in my lifting career, I will tell you that my ego sometimes got way ahead of my body. <laughs> Right. And caused me some injury. I am now a lot smarter. <laughs> and, you know, being able to like listen to those signals from your body, you know, like um, getting the feedback and honoring it, like not training when you're tired, you know, this muscle feels really tight, but I'm just going to push forward anyway. Oh, I feel a little bit of pain. Well, I think I'll just do this thing anyway. Right. Like, so constantly like being in dialogue with your body, I think is important because then you also learn, like you said, you like you're learning the parts where you're connected and disconnected. And I know that now, right? Like I know which parts of my body are likely to be offline more than, than others. Yes. <laughs> but again, I think that just comes back to, you know, it's all of this that we've been talking about is under the headline of building like a relationship with your body, right? Like through sickness and through health and through fitness and through all of it. And that it's a constant give and take dialogue, right? Like you're giving some inputs. It's telling you something about it. You know what I mean? You're honoring it. And sometimes it means dialing things way back. Sometimes it means pushing yourself a little bit harder. Like there's all of that. And so this idea that we have as women is that our focus is on a specific scale number 
come hell or high water, you must meet that number, <laughs> leads us to do very unhealthy things, leads us to not trust our bodies, to not be connected with our bodies because our reference point is the scale. <laughs> right? Yes. And I think it's also, it doesn't work. That's the big problem. And it doesn't work. Exactly. But you find so many women and, you know, I talk to them every day. They have a scale number, this famous thing that you just mentioned, the scale number, and they have connected to that number. They have a memory of when they felt good about themselves. That could be something. Right. I weighed that in my 30s. I once had a client said, oh, in my early 40s, I was at that weight and that was perfect. And she so wanted to get back to that weight. And the problem is, number doesn't tell the whole story. The number doesn't tell right. the whole story. If you, in order to get back to that weight, have been on, say, five harsh diets, you will have eaten so much into your muscle mass during those diets that, first of all, it's going to be very hard to reach that weight. And if you reach it, you will be flabby. You will not be the same person that you were 20 yeah. years ago at that weight. And you I think it's also something that doesn't work. And I think it's nearly toxic because it's kind of destructive. It's reductive. It's about shrinking. It's about becoming smaller. And it's about, you know, sort of making parts of yourself sort of go away. When you turn it around and you come at it from this perspective of wanting to build muscle and get stronger, you have something positive to do. You have something to build, which is so much more inspiring. And it's no wonder that mm. diets fail all the time because you cannot get inspired and motivated by trying to cut something down. You can get inspired by trying to build something. It's trying to feel something yeah. grow, um, getting stronger. And the thing is that you know, the physique that you dream of is much more likely to become a reality if you go from this building perspective, because you will, you know, rev up your metabolism, you will have all that muscle that will help you with your blood sugar management. It's just everything is so much easier. And it's, it's more empowering, more inspiring. And it's going to work so much better than all those harsh diets. Yeah, that is so, so true. I mean, again, in my own experience, when I stopped focusing on weight and started focusing on how strong I could become, I was like, one day I looked at my body and I was like, oh, wow, look, I look better than I ever have, right? Byproduct of, but it wasn't the focus because like you said, the focus on making myself smaller, making, you know, <laughs> like shrinking as opposed to building, it's, I mean, energetically, it just, it doesn't work, <laughs> doesn't work. Yes. And I think the other important thing that you've touched on a lot in this is that we also tend to have this, you know, well, I should have started this when I was in my 20s, or I really wish I'd done that in my 30s, right? But it's never, ever too late, right? It isn't. And actually, it's, I think today in the Washington Post, there's a story about how they found, again, that you can still build muscle in your 90s. So your body works the same way. It reacts to stim stimuli the same way. And generally, we do not become weak and stiff because we're growing old. Weak and stiff because we move less. We use our muscles less as we grow old. We have other priorities, maybe, you know, during our 30s, 40s. So many people are 
you know, working on their jobs and building, creating a family and not paying much attention. And that's where things happen. But it's not because we're growing older. It's just because we're not using what we have. And it's never, never, never too late. I mean, you should have seen my legs after three weeks of not walking. They were just sticks with a little bit of fat left on them. That was it. They're very atrophied and it all comes back. You just have to, you know, do something. And it's also, I think this is a really important message and we want to share this message because I know that many women think that it's too late for them, that there's too much, they ache too much, they feel too tired, too discouraged, too unmotivated to do anything. And that's, it's just not true. And when you realize that you can start with the tiniest of steps, the tiniest of change yes. that will take you to a better place. It's something that's really super important to, to remember. Direction is always, always more important than speed. As long as you're moving into the yes. right direction, it's not important how fast you go because time is on your side. You're moving into the right direction, so you're moving forward. And don't worry so much about getting there fast because, you know, it took a while to get to where you're at now. And if you feel like very tired or unfit or overweight, it hasn't come overnight and it will not go overnight. But as soon as you realize this is the direction I want to go. And you take a tiny step every day, you'll get there. Yeah, I love that you say that because this is one of the things I say all the time is find the tiniest possible step that you can take in the direction that you want to go. And like, (laughs) this is my example. I've been trying to get back into yoga because I'm my muscles are very tight and I lift, I lift heavy a lot and I need the, the counterbalance. But mentally, I have a big block against yoga. So <laughs> sometimes my commitment to yoga is to literally roll my mat out on the floor, right? Like that's it. And then there are some days where I'm like, okay, well, I rolled out the mat, I can go stand on it. And I can do, you know, downward dog for two minutes. And then once I'm on the mat and I'm doing it for two minutes, I'll be like, okay, I can do one more thing because I'm already here. But I didn't stand, start out with that. Okay. I'm going to just go do an hour of yoga because my brain would be just like, well, run away. Right. I'm like, yes. I'm literally going to roll my mat out. <laughs> okay. I can do that check, but that progression. And then before I even know it, I've looked at the clock and I'm like, oh, I just spent 20 minutes doing yoga. But had I set out to do that, <laughs> it would not have happened. <laughs> Yeah, that's absolutely crucial. And I, I have this thing that I do with my clients. It's, you know, the five minute rule. You don't want to do your training. You don't want to go for your walk. It's fine. You know, don't make it a fight in your head. Don't make it a big negotiation. Yeah. Just tell yourself, I'm just going to go and do five minutes today. I can always do five minutes, even on a like really bad day. Yeah. I can do five minutes. And then if after five minutes, you feel that it really is a super bad day and you just want to stop. Yeah. You stop, but you've done five minutes. Most of the time, so though, after, f- <laughs> after five minutes, you're going to just think, yeah, I can do this and you will keep going. And then you, ha- instead of doing nothing, you will have, you know, done probably your full workout or maybe half a workout. It's always better than nothing. That is so true. I can't tell you the number of times. Like I, in fact, I don't even think I can, I think maybe once or twice where I've done that, where I'm like, okay, you just have to get to the gym. 
And then if you're not feeling it, you can absolutely have permission to leave. And I, I think there might have been once or twice where I was like, okay, this is not happening today. But 99% of the time, you're like, I'm here, I might as well. And then your brain is just like, oh, this is what we're doing. And like you said, you take the fight out of it. So yes. it's that, you know, just get started in the tiniest possible way. It could be like, I don't know if you've read Atomic Habits. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like it could be just putting your shoes on, build that habit, right? It could be rolling out your yoga mat, build that habit, right? So the tiniest little things will actually get you a long, long way. And then one day you look back and you're like, wow, remember when I couldn't even put my shoes on, (laughs) right? Absolutely. And this is also something that I find really important. You always want to measure backwards. Now you might have like a really lofty, fantastic goal But when you only look at that goal in the future, it can be so discouraging or intimidating or you might think, I'm never going to get there. The road is too far. It's too, too far away. But when you look backwards at where you've come from and what you've already achieved, you know, you're going to get positive reinforcement and think, yeah, no, I can, I've come far. I can be proud and I can keep going. There's a lot of talk about, you know, these ambitious goals and you have to have these really, you know, motivating and maybe even a bit scary goals and stuff. And it's fine to have them, but like on a daily basis or sometimes when you have a bad day, you don't want to look there. You want to look back and look at where have I come from. Yeah, we don't do that enough. That is so true. So you've literally built yourself back up from not being able to walk, (laughs) kind of starting, restarting your fitness journey. You've been without treatment for MS for six years, I think you said. Yes. Where are you now and what is your experience now where you are? Well, five years ago, more or less by accident, I started training in Olympic weightlifting, which is different ball game from and what you're doing is probably what we call powerlifting, where you do like deadlifts and, and squats and presses and stuff. And Olympic weightlifting is two movements. You have to get the bar over your head in the snatch. It's in one movement, in one pull from the floor, you get it over your head. And the clean and jerk is you can pull it to your shoulders first and then in the second movement. And I started this by accident and I was hooked right away because it involves the strength and also the technique. So it's physical, but it's also physics. And it's very, very challenging, but it's great fun. It's really, I'm just enjoying it and I joined a weightlifting gym and there was also one aspect I thought about this when we talked about weight and the big number, you know, weightlifting is in, in weight categories and the number has just the one meaning that you're lifting in a specific category. So you could have a situation in a weightlifting gym where everybody's training and the coach calls out to everybody, how much do you weigh? Because he wants to, know, to put down the weight. And, you know, if you, you can ask any women if she wants to be asked about her weight in public and everybody's <laughs> going to go, oh my God, that's not possible. And it's totally normal. Nobody cares. You know, it, it, there's no judgment, no value, no nostalgic memory attached to any weight. It's just how much do you weigh and then how much do you pull? And I started competing pretty soon because the gym where I went to, they are, you know, for competing. And they asked me, do you want to compete? And I thought I was too old, but they said, of course you're not. There's masters competitions and stuff. Mm. Love um, that. And that's where I'm at now. I, I train three times a week. I won the European Championship this year, this, which, which was really great in my age and weight category. And I went to the World Championship and won bronze. And I'm preparing for the European Championship next year. 
which is going to be in Norway. And this is also something that I I really enjoy sharing because masters sports and that's for people who are older than 35, which is also a little bit... (laughs) So funny. (laughs) Like, yeah, you're old when you're 35. They have sort of exploded. So older people, you know, whatever you mean by older, but people our age, they're organizing competitions and events in sports and they're just having fun out there, you know, mm. traveling. And I think that's, that's great. It's not like, you know, when you're 50. And when I remember my grandmother, when she was my age, you know, she was just, she was going for walks and she was having tea at home and that was it. And now people, <laughs> right. you know, can go, can go out there and, and do stuff and, and challenge themselves and, and weightlifting competitions. You can actually see guys that are 88. And they go onto the podium and they lift. And I mean, they also travel for that. And I I think that's really inspiring. And that's what I'm doing right now in my own training. I, I just keep lifting. I love that. I love this so much. I mean, you know, like we were just talking about, like your diagnosis or your identity as being an MS sufferer is like long gone and replaced with the fact that you're like, you're doing, you know, weightlifting competitions. Like, how beautiful is that? But I mean, the fact remains, right? You still have this diagnosis, but it's not who you are because you have all of this other capability. And see beyond that, I just think is so beautiful. And it's the exact same thing as seeing beyond our age. Like age is no determination of literally anything anymore. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's what you make it. I totally agree. I remember that I do a lot of uh, fall prevention training with my clients because I think that's like life insurance. And I remember I had one client, she was in, she was like 72 and she sent me a message and she said, you know, Kim, getting up from the floor is not easy for someone who's 72. And I said, well, age has got nothing to do with it. And my mom is 86. You can get up and down from the floor like a rubber ball. And this is also a limitation in our thinking. You know, this is not what people our age do. No, we can do whatever we want. If we are in shape and we make sure that we stay in shape or we get back in shape, then we can do whatever takes our fancy. Yeah. But being strong, like physically strong is probably a better determinant of health than probably anything. Would you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's the science is solid. It's a very, very strong indicator of longevity. And the thing is, you have all the science and the health markers and it's clear it's metabolic health, mental health joint health, functional independence, everything is better when you're strong. What I think um, should really be what clinches it for everybody to start getting strong is the quality of life that you experience. It's just, mm. it's just mind blowing. Yes. Yeah. You have good, might have good blood work and, you know, your doctor will say, yeah, you're in good shape for your age, whatever it is, but the quality of life. That's just yes. so worth it. You don't want to ache when you wake up in the morning. You want to jump out of bed. You want to be able to tie your shoes. You want to be able to roll on the floor with your grandkids. That's quality of life. And that alone, I think, is worth getting strong and, and working on your muscle. Yeah, I 100% agree. This has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you for sharing your inspiring story with us. I think you are like your story alone, you know, because I think so many people would have gotten the diagnosis of MS and then they would have foretold their own story. And you took the power back, <laughs> you, you know, and changed the trajectory. And like, so symptom wise, where are you now? Like, do you have still have symptoms or how does, how do you feel? 
I just have the leftover damage in my left hand, which is doesn't have a lot of sensitivity. So if I look mm-hmm. for my lipstick in my handbag, I better use my right hand because I cannot, cannot really feel that. But that's about it. And I don't feel much bothered. It's the reminder of where I've been. And it helps me, you know, being grateful every single day for just being, I mean, just being able to walk. I remember a moment when I was looking out of the window, so two people walking out there. I couldn't walk. They walked and they had grumpy faces. They were like, like this. <laughs> How can right. you be like this? You're so blessed you can walk. And I keep practice that gratitude every day because I know, you know, it's, it's not granted. And I, yeah. Otherwise live totally normally. Just, you know, my hand, small reminder. That's beautiful. That's okay. Beautiful. So where can people find more about you and the work that you do? Um, I know you have a, I think you have on Instagram as well, where you share some of your weightlifting endeavors. <laughs> yes. So they can look at my Facebook page, Kim Rahia, just with my name. And there I share what I'm up to. I go to a competition and I give tips and tricks and sometimes do challenges and stuff. And then if you want to find out more, you can go to my website, kimrahir.com. And on there, you can also book a call where we can have a conversation about where you're at. It's not going to be a sales call. It's really just an honest conversation. Find out, you know, how your health and fitness is and where you can start maybe to get strong too and build some Mm. muscle. I love that. I love that. So we'll make sure all of that gets in the show notes. And to everybody listening, you know, I hope you take inspiration from this, no matter where you are in your health and fitness journey, the opportunity for improvement is there. And we just have to start one teeny tiny step that you can do today, like literally today. And let Kim's story be your inspiration for what's possible. So thank you, Kim. This has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I enjoyed this really. You're a great host. (laughs) Thank you. So to those of you listening, if you like what you heard today, please feel free to give us a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. Or even better, the greatest compliment you could give us would be to pass this episode on to a friend or a relative or somebody you think might get some benefit from it. So until next time. Thank you for listening to the Old Chicks No Shit podcast. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen in.